Good evening. It's Monday night. I know we usually come to you guys on Tuesday nights, but we have a very special guest tonight and uh, a very special format. We have Dr. Ed Yardeni, the illustrious Ed Yardeni, uh, who's been working on Wall Street a very long time. His research is widely read and expect and uh, respected all over the place. And Ed's out with a new book, and we wanted to talk to him about it and give you guys an opportunity to hear him explain what he's trying to say and why this message is so timely and so important. Before we get to Ed, just two quick items, items of housekeeping. That's Duncan in the live chat controlling the, the, uh, the compound handle. Uh, we're definitely monitoring the live chat. If somebody has a question for Ed and they post it, we'll try our best to fit that in in, in the time allotted. Um, so feel free to continue to comment, and we really appreciate that. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention here, John, throw that slide up for me. Uh, the Future Proof Festival, which we announced two and a half weeks ago, has now surpassed 500 registered financial advisors and professional investors. So we are 500 plus registered for an event that is 10 months from now. We announced two weeks ago, not a single speaker announced. So there is a lot of energy out there and pent up uh, enthusiasm for a live event. So I wanted to say thank you to you guys for registering, spreading the word. It's going to be sick. We're going to be making announcements for the next 10 months about what's going to be happening out there. And uh, I'm telling you, get registered as soon as you can. All right. Dr. Ed, so great to see you. We really appreciate you coming through tonight. We read your book. Um, I've read a whole bunch of your books. I can't keep up with all of them because you can write faster than I can read. Uh, But this is a very timely one. The subject matter seems to be at the crux of so many of the national debates Mm -hmm. that we're having right now. I want to just kick this off with a couple of lines that you put in a Barron's op-ed this week to coincide with the release of the book, which, by the way, uh, is called In Praise of Profits. And this is you in Barron's. Sure. Most Americans are better off today than ever before. This is an easily verified fact, but to say so these days – is to risk arrest by the cancel culture police. It flies in the face of a core belief behind progressive policies that only the wealthy in America have never had it so good. This belief, however, is wrong. Okay, so that's provocative, and that's how you do an op-ed. Never bury the lead. Why do you think it's so controversial to say, yes, things are getting really great for billionaires, but they're also getting pretty darn good for everyone else too? Why is that so controversial? Well, you know, the, uh, the, the progressives, the folks on the left, the professors, politicians, uh, supporters of uh, those kind of policies have been very, very good at uh, mining the data and uh, proving to everybody that uh, that's the case, that the, the wealthy have been getting richer and richer and everybody else's standard of living has been stagnating for years. And they, they cut it in a slice of different ways. They'll, they'll show a chart of productivity and productivity tends to grow around 2% per year. And when you look at uh, what uh, workers have gotten from that productivity on their charts, it, it's, it's as they say in New York, bupkis, it's nothing. Uh, it's been absolutely stagnating. So all this stagnation th- thesis has uh, motivated progressives to constantly be pushing for more and more policies that uh, focus on redistributing income. And all I really wanted to do is create some balance from that view, which I think has gotten the, uh, all, all the press and it's gotten all the language 
Uh, I, I think if you ask most people, uh, or if you told most people that you know that standards of living have stagnated for three, three four decades, everybody say, yeah, I know that. I, I've heard it all the time. Uh, you have famous uh, people like uh, Joseph Stiglitz, who's a Nobel Prize winner. I actually studied under him at Yale University. I studied microeconomics, and uh, he's taken the position that things have stagnated. Joe, Joe Biden uh, just a, a few months ago uh, stammered that um, something like uh, uh, 70, dec uh, 70 years have gone by in which workers have been exploited or have uh, been um, getting uh, not getting their, their fair share. So I, I think he obviously knew he must mis misspoke. It's uh, nobody I think believes or were no better off uh, as, as a majority of the people than 70 years ago. But I think even if you think just just a little bit about uh, what things were like 30, 40 years ago, just doesn't make any sense that uh, the standard of living hasn't increased. So I'm, I'm a big fan of looking at the data and the data just doesn't confirm a lot of these progressive notions. Do we have a measurement problem or are, are each yeah. sides of this debate measuring something different and then coming to the answer that they want to get? Well, you know, I'm, I'm looking at all the data. So I'm, I'm not looking to get the answer that I want to get, though I am a conservative and I'm pleased with the, 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 uh, the, the data that's available that it confirms it. But I'm, I've been slicing and dicing the progressives data as well, and I'm just not convinced that uh, the data is good. Uh, one of the biggest issues is they tend to divide things by the CPI, so they tend to divide income by the CPI, and everybody agrees that the CPI is upwardly biased and that a much better measure is something called the consumption deflator. And when you uh, use the deflator instead of the CPI, to, uh, to inflation adjust income series, what you find is that uh, the average standard of living has increased about one and a half percent per year since 1995. That's not stagnation. Now, one and a half percent may not seem like much, but that's consistent with about two to two and a half percent growth in real GDP. And it does compound to something like a 25 to 30 percent increase in the standard of living over the past few decades. That's not bad at all. You show, John, if you can put up figure one for me here, you have this, this chart that shows corporate profits and proprietor's income uh, since the late 1940s. And it obviously shows this this march upward over time. The trend is, is pretty obvious to see. Do you think that – now, I love arguing about this stuff. We mm -hmm. talk about the Fed and they're being too loose or too tight, and we yeah. talk about tax rates being too high or too low, um, keeping your foot on the gas too long or taking it off, taking the punch bowl away too soon. Do we maybe make too much of the policy stuff here? Because obviously, over this long term, you've had recessions, you've had Democrats, you've had Republicans, you've had different policies. Like, maybe we just make too much of this because the march has been higher no matter what happens. And we've had so many Correct. different environments, high rates, low rates, high taxes, low taxes. That's, uh, that, that's a great point. Uh, one, one of uh, the, the lines that I usually pitch in, uh, in, in my discussions and presentations with accounts is that after we go through this, it's like, look, the reality is, it's amazing how well the country does despite our politicians and uh, and corporate profits, as you say, from this chart have done remarkably well despite the politicians. So there is something remarkably resilient about the US economy. And I, I think what that is is entrepreneurial capitalism. Uh, I'm a, I, I hate crony capitalism, but I love entrepreneurial capitalism, mostly because I'm an entrepreneurial capitalist, which I, I think what that means is I don't have make enough money to hire lobbyists and and, and, and get the politicians to, to help me out and to create barriers to entry for, for my business. 
I have to compete with uh, lots of other good competitors. And that kind of system is uh, remarkable in its ability to generate prosperity. So th the main theme of the book is that profits is not a four-letter word, quite the opposite. Profits is the very essence. It's the very uh, heart of what causes prosperity, which is economic growth. And then along the way, we get these debates about how we redistribute that economic growth. All I'm saying is if we spend too much time debating with each other, arguing with each other how to redistribute income, we're not going to grow it. The exploited worker story, though, is a very big part of yeah. why this of, of why this debate mm -hmm. seems to have so many people on on the side of there is a problem with a society that's solely geared toward a few people producing right. outlandish profits for themselves right. and then having this underclass of white collar workers mm -hmm. who then reap a large part themselves and then everyone else out in the wilderness. Hopefully they get hired. Maybe they don't. Um, but like it, there, there is, sure. there is a lot of appeal to, to that, to yeah, that fight. Yeah. So why though? What, well, what do you think causes for, that? Josh, I mean, that's been around for a long time. It's been around uh, since uh, Marx and, uh, and, and, and prior to that, the idea that uh, capitalism, capitalism is a system that exploits workers and that capitalists uh, are uh, greedy and evil and, uh, uh, we need to have progressives constantly save capitalism from itself. Uh, we, we hear that all the time. Uh, but the reality yeah. is entrepreneurial capitalism has created an enormous amount of prosperity. It's created all sorts of technological innovations that have dramatically improved uh, pe people's standard of livings. Uh, and you can go all the way back to the late 1800s, uh, the period of the so-called robber barons. The progressives love to call entrepreneurs robber barons. But those robber barons happened to invent things like electricity and gasoline and the automobile and plumbing and uh, heating. Uh, I mean, it's uh, the, we, we wouldn't be here today without the uh, profit motive, which gave the entrepreneurs an incentive to come up with all these technologies that have improved our standard of living. Now, this whole class warfare thing, it's just, just got to stop. Uh, it, it makes no sense. Uh, it didn't make sense even... Well, it made more sense when Marx was around, but uh, you know, hey, he was a—he and Engel were like twenty-year-old revolutionaries. They were wannabes, and they were just dead wrong about what capitalism really does. What capitalism really does is it focuses on one and only one class, and that's the consuming class. And, and we're all consumers, and that's what entrepreneurial capitalism does extraordinarily well: is it improves the standard of living of the consuming class. That's everybody. And the, the, the people who get hurt the, the most in a capitalistic competitive system are the producers who aren't delivering the goods, the, the better goods at lower, at lower prices. So that's, I think, why uh, I'm, I, I think we need to get away from this class warfare idea and, and realize that um, a capitalist system is, is, so creates lots of good, lot, lots of high quality goods and services at the lowest possible prices on an ongoing basis, and it creates technological innovations that improve our lives. You, you talk in here about how when we have a boom like we've had, unfortunately, the rich are always going to get richer because they oh. hold the financial assets. So the, the top 10% now owns almost 90% of the stocks and fund mm -hmm. assets. Um, and I like your idea here, and I've, I've written about this too. You, you said it would cost $4 billion a year if we put $1,000 into a stock ETF yeah. for every baby. Let's go to I, that last chart, the very last chart. If we can, yeah, I mean that's. I, I'm I'm trying to come up with ideas. Look, I'm 
I'm not fighting progressives. They've, they've done a lot. Uh, they've created a safety net. I'm giving them credit where credit is due. I'm, I'm trying to kind of find a, a, a happy uh, kind of average uh, position where I can give them credit and uh, they can give something in return, which is acknowledging that some of their analysis has just been dead wrong. I don't know if they'll ever do that. But uh, that chart shows that uh, the, uh, the, the compounded rate uh, of uh, return on stocks has been around 10%. So I'm, I'm arguing that since the government likes, likes to give money away, let's do something constructive here that makes people appreciate capitalism and, and profits. Let's give all the babies that are born next year, let's say it's about 3, 3.5 million, 4 million babies. Let's give them each a thousand bucks. So it's gonna cost us maybe $4 billion. And we do that every single year. And we put it into uh, you know, a, 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 a capital sharing plan, something where you can't, you can't touch it until you're 65 years old. Uh, we can say, okay, when you go to college, if you need to do it, use it, well, you can use it as well. But at 10%, it would compound to something like uh, $600,000 by the time uh, these people are 65 years old. So uh, I think it would be a great way to you know, give, give everybody some skin in the game. And then if they really start to appreciate what capitalism can do and the power of compounding of dividends and earnings, um, it will make people appreciate capitalism much more and be much more supportive of it. Were you like, so your book came out the same week as somebody for the first time ever became worth $300 billion personally, Elon Musk. Were you like, oh shit, why this week? Like any other, any other week? <laughs> Josh, he's okay. giving some of it back. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, Fair. As, as we, uh, I think we agree that uh, it is during periods of prosperity that you get the most inequality. I mean, that's the crazy thing. It's like, you know, when times are really good is when the rich get really rich, but everybody else does better and better as well. Uh, the standard yeah. of living has been increasing even as the rich got richer. By the way, some of this is demography. The baby boomers are the... Are, are the fat cats here, and uh, they're not going to live forever. And uh, uh, as as they kind of uh, dis disappear, uh, there'll be an, an inheritance left for their uh, for their kids. But it'll naturally uh, wealth will naturally go to the next generation, uh, and and they will build wealth. Uh, but Elon Musk is a wealth builder. I mean, can you really say that he exploited anybody by developing electronic cars that uh, electric vehicles that are extremely popular? Can you really say that he exploited any, everybody by, uh, you know, creating uh, reusable missiles, uh, to rockets to, uh, to to go into uh, to, uh, into space? I don't think so. Uh, so I don't I, think the I don't think the the I don't think the anti Elon Musk sentiment on the left has anything to do with him being exploitative. I think it has more to do with just the absolute level of personal wealth creation. Sure. In a time in a in a in a pandemic and mm -hmm. the relatively small amount of tax paid so far, we know he's going to pay yeah. tons of money in tax, but I, I don't think it's Elon Musk is exploiting the working class. I think it's more like, mm -hmm. Hey man, you, you, we got to figure out a way to get yeah. more of your money from you. And and that seems to be the animating uh, well, it's logic. The, it's the Willie Sutton motive, right? Willie Sutton was a bank robber in the 1930s. And uh, when he was asked uh, why he robbed banks, he said, that's where the money is. Turns out that he claims he never said that, but he said that if he was asked that, he would have said that. Whatever. Uh, 
but the point is there's a natural tendency for people on the left, for politicians, generally speaking, to look for where the money is and then try to tax it and try to redistribute it. Uh, it gives them a tremendous amount of power to be able to do that. Uh, but the reality is some of these uh, mega wealthy people make so much money that they don't even know what to do with it. They can't spend it. So what do they do? They create charities. Uh, they fund uh, new ventures. And uh, who uh, do you want to fund new ventures but people who've already succeeded in creating a tremendous amount of wealth by creating things like Tesla? Uh, so I don't really, uh, I don't really want to, you know, to take money away from these creative people because they're going to continue to create and uh, they, they will uh, share the wealth through charity. So I think what the, the response to that would be is not that people want to take money from them. People want to take the money that is perceived to be owed back to society or to our democracy or whatever mm-hmm. um, so that it can be put to a more constructive use sure. other than – reinvesting it to make that person even more wealthy or having it sit fast asleep in treasury bonds. I think that that's really what they're saying. Well, absolutely. And that's why we have a progressive tax system. And uh, that's why when you look at, uh, you know, who's paying the taxes, we've seen that the tax system has become more and more progressive. I'll I'll, I'll admit, I'll say that I know you know that uh, everybody pays a payroll tax and that's not progressive, it's regressive. We know that uh, everybody pays an inflation tax which is also regressive when you have inflation. But the reality is uh, the uh, the top 1%, the, literally the, the, the 1.5 million tax returns of the 150 million tax returns that we have data on shows that they paid 40% of the uh, of, of income taxes. So what's fair? I mean, should they be paying 50%, 60%, 70%? I, I don't know, but I just know that we don't want to overdo it because we do want people to have the incentive uh, to pursue the profit motive. And maybe the rich need to uh, redistribute their incomes, but you do that with the tax code. And it's not my fault that these people can afford some pretty expensive lobbyists and, and, and tax lawyers. I mean, the politicians have to say, what what do we really need that's good for the country in a tax code and te- instead of having all these politicians uh, being influenced by, uh, by by money. That's really where we get into problems is when entrepreneurial capitalism capitalism becomes crony capitalism, when they get together with the politicians. Uh, I would love, I mean, it's, it's, it's an idealistic uh, concept that, that, to have that, but uh, I think in the United States, we've done a pretty good job actually of uh, keeping the entrepreneurial spirit going. You know, there's 130 million uh, Americans that work in the private sector roughly and uh, 56 million of them work for uh, corporations like the S&P 500. 74 million uh, work for partnerships and S corporations uh, and sole uh, proprietorships. These are pass pass throughs, which are very very popular now. Very yeah. popular. And that chart that we were looking at before, the first chart that showed profits. The reason I add proprietors' income is they get they're like the Rodney Dangerfield. They get no respect. We've got a tremendous. We got 27. A million sole proprietorships in America. America, you know, they, they say that the Brits are a, a nation of shopkeepers. We're a nation of proprietors. Uh, my company is an S corporation. I own it, okay? Uh, and uh, whatever profits I have, I can pass through 
uh, into dividends and then pay, pay those kind of taxes. I, I'm all for having a zero corporate tax rate. How's that a, for being radical on, on corporations? And then let them take that money and pay more dividends. I may have to put some sort of restrictions on, uh, on buybacks, which we can discuss. But uh, all corporations do when you tax them more is they pass it on. They're, they're, they don't pay taxes. They are kind of to toll collectors. And so I, I think we have to realize that the entrepreneurial society is working. And um, as you guys were saying before, it's amazing how well we've, we do despite uh, all the interventions of the government. Yeah, you, you lay out the scenario here in your book that we could have this roaring 20s. And you, you say you think that like competition is inherently deflationary. So you think there could be, especially from some productivity gains and technology, an offset to yeah. the inflation that we're seeing. So, so I mean, you could make the case if this happens, the, the inequality is going to get worse, right? The, the no. rich are going to get, probably the rest of this decade, it, that's possible it gets worse. Do you think? No, I'll tell you why. Um, the, the, the roaring 2020s, let's look at figure six. Uh, figure six is, uh, is, is, is really the, the heart of, uh, is it going to be the roaring 2020s or is it going to be the, a repeat of the dismal 1970s? And in the dismal 1970s, if you look at that red line, that's the growth rate. It's, it's a, a trend. It's not a trend adjusted. It's a volatility adjusted measure. And I mean that in terms of just the ups and downs in the chart. Uh, if you look at the 20 quarter percent change, basically a five year average change in productivity and take the annual rate, you can see that uh, it peaked in uh, the uh, mid 60s, uh, over 4%, and then it just collapsed to zero by the end of the decade. I, I don't think that's what's ahead of us here. If you look at the red line, uh, let, let's go put, put the red line again and, and look at the, the latest data since 2015, productivity has increased from 0.5% uh, at an annual rate for a five year period to about 2% now. The latest data was a setback for me, and now it's only 1.6%. But I think it's going to 4%. It's done it before. It'll do it again. Now, why is it going to do that? I think one of the most obvious reasons to me is demography. I'm a big fan of understanding what demography is doing to our economy. And basically, I think I have that chart here on, um, no, I don't. Yeah, the, the, you have to trust me on this. The growth rate in the labor force and the working age population, those kind of demographic variables right now are growing close to zero. Uh, demographically, the baby boomers, they were a big bulge in, this, in our demography. They're retiring. The oldest of them are turning 75 years old. And we don't have as many people coming in, so the labor force just isn't growing. And all of these uh, uh, explanations of why uh, the labor force has slowed uh, that are basically temporary in nature. Miss the obvious one, and that is there is chronic labor shortages because of the underlying demography. Companies are starting to understand that. Some uh, have understood it for a while. And the only way to succeed in that kind of environment is to increase the productivity of your current workforce, of increase their manual and mental productivity. And we have the technologies to do that. So what happens when productivity is growing? As you can see from that chart before, you don't have to show it again, but you remember there were two lines that were pretty closely correlated. And I show it again, why not? It's, it's a great chart, in my humble opinion. Uh, the productivity line is the red chart. The blue chart is real hourly compensation. It's the broadest- Look how, tight, the, look how tight those are. Yeah, it's, it's the broadest measure of compensation uh, per, per worker, per household, 
And I'm using the deflator instead of the CPI. Correlation is very tight. So if productivity is going to really grow, guess what? Wages are going to grow relative to prices. Productivity is a wonderful variable. It allows, it avoids the wage price spiral, which was what we had in the 70s. And it allows wages to rise faster than prices. Profit margins stay high. Profits are, uh, are great. So that's the kind of scenario I'm rooting for. It. It's not inevitable. I, I grant you that there are things going on now that kind of like look a little bit like the 1970s. But the technology that's out there is so awesome and powerful that I think productivity is going to make a tremendous comeback. Add 25, 25 million new brokerage accounts were opened in the pandemic year 2020, most of that in the last nine months of that year. Um, we, have, we have brand new asset classes that are primarily dominated by the young, like cryptocurrency and NFTs that have garnered trillions of dollars. Right. Um, none of these things, these anecdotal things or none of the statistics would be taking place in an environment where the quote unquote work worker class uh, was was being steamrolled by capital, they I I mean the the two things seem utterly incongruous. So why are people? We had an explosion in new business formation in the last twelve months too. Like none of these things strike me as being um, possible if the story of stagnation were the reality. There's there's just more going on here. Than, than can possibly be captured by that idea that nobody's getting a raise. I want to uh, propose one thing sure. that a lot of people are missing in the data, and I want to hear your take on it. If you look at the aggregate of income, let's say, I don't know if I'm saying this right, you have boomers retiring at the top of the income scale, right. and their jobs are being taken by 24-year-olds. The 24-year-old is not being paid the same amount as the exiting 64-year-old. Correct. So doesn't that, and that's happening in the tens of millions over 20 years, doesn't that skew the data um, and, and make you think that no one's ever getting a raise and nobody's ever seeing an well, increase right. in income? That's right. Uh, what, what's really, what the progressives are, are, are always missing, and the, the, they, they know better, but it doesn't support their argument, is income uh, mobility, upward income mobility. In a, in a competitive uh, capitalist system, entrepreneurial system, Mobility can go both ways. You can you can see that the rich uh, lose everything, and you can see that uh, people who are just starting out uh, become very rich. I mean, if you look at the Fortune, uh, the, 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 the the Forbes uh, 400, I, I guess it is, uh, mo most of those folks are kind of old, um, and they're not the same people that were in that list 20, 30, 40 years ago. So I think a, a lot of what's missing in the discussion of, uh, of, of income is in fact income mobility. Uh, you know, uh, when I started working, I wasn't making very much. I worked at the Federal Reserve and I was making, I think, $20,000, $25,000, which even back then wasn't, wasn't a lot, especially living in New York. Uh, this was the Federal Reserve uh, Bank in New York. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable now, I, I'm, I'm doing better, but uh, that's the nature of, uh, of what we're seeing here. Look at uh, figure 12. And, and we should be looking at the distribution of household net worth in the yes. U.S. since 1989. And this is data that the Fed recently came up with. And I think it's uh, I think it's pretty good data because any data that supports my story has got to be good data. But anyways, that's right. <laughs> uh, but as you can see that there, there's definitely a demographic impact here that 
the silent uh, generation, the people who won World War II for us, uh, they were the ones that had all the wealth back then, but it wasn't much. It wasn't a very rich country. And, and then along the way, you can see that the baby boomers, as they aged, became wealthier and wealthier and owned more and more of the wealth. Now you can see that the Gen, Gen X uh, demographic uh, uh, cohort are getting uh, more of, of, of the wealth. And uh, eventually uh, the, uh, the millennials will be, uh, will be getting that. I mean, at some point here, the, I mean, the, the, the silent can generation- Can you put that back up? Uh, ben, are you Ben? Are you surprised that even after the last decade of substantial growth in stock market assets, uh, as one example, houses too, that millennials are still so far below the silent generation, and and there are so few people in the silent generation that are still with us, right? And there are so many millennials. How could it be that way? I think you're going to see a massive pickup in this. Because millennials have put off household formation for so long, not only because of the 2008 crash when they first came into the job market, because they went to school longer, they're more educated. So I think eventually their incomes are going to be higher, and I think you're going to see a very quick pickup. I think Gen X is going to hold the title for a little bit, and millennials are going to, don't you think, probably come up pretty quickly on this. Look, I I think we live in, uh, despite all the problems we have, despite the the, the role of the government, despite crony capitalism, I I think we still have a, a huge shark tank economy uh, my wife and i like to watch shark tank and sometimes my 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 tears uh, well up just watching the show because there still is an entrepreneurial spirit if you want to get rich in america you start a business you you build the business and that's why i think it's so important to focus on proprietorships on on s corporations uh, uh on uh, partnerships these are the people that don't want to work for other people they want to create their own business and if they succeed, they hire lots of other people. You know, it's not the government. It's not presidents. It's not politicians that create jobs. It's businesses that create jobs. And you know what kind of businesses do that? Profitable ones. And the smaller profitable ones eventually grow up to be big profitable companies with lots of employees. Or they go out of business and somebody else, uh, you know, r- runs them over and does a better job. It's a beautiful system. And the only so, people that really, really get hurt are entrepreneurs who aren't giving the consumers what what they deserve. So what if what if I push back a little bit for yeah, the sake of do. discussion and say it is absolutely true that entrepreneurs who start businesses, especially in the modern era where there's enough capital for anyone who wants it to basically start anything and valuations out of the gate for a technology company – you could just basically name a number and somebody will give it to you. Right. Um, so it's a great it's a great environment for that. I agree with you. But A, not everybody can be the founder. Correct. The, founder, the chiefs need Indians and, uh, and, and founders need people who are willing to, to work for someone. And we're still going to be in this situation where if we don't get more people involved in scenarios where they can have equity in something – Right. They're going to get left behind at an accelerated rate, especially right. if the markets continue at this pace. What's the, what's the right answer to that puzzle? You're, you're what do we do about that? You're absolutely right, and that's that's the conundrum here. That's the uh, paradox of, uh, of prosperity: is the, you get your most uh, income inequality, wealth inequality during periods of prosperity, and the asset that creates a lot of the uh, inequality is is equity. It's either equity. 
owned by people in their own business or is equity owned in the public market? Uh, look, look at the, the fortunes that have been made in the S&P 500 and in private equity uh, businesses. Uh, so uh, what's exciting about looking ahead here is that there is such a shortage of labor that I think uh, employers, um, capitalists, uh, entrepreneurs are going to do everything they can to increase the productivity of their workers. Uh, that means that they're going to make their workers, help their workers become uh, more productive. They have to do that. If, if, if labor force isn't growing, real GDP's growth is going to be zero if we don't have any productivity. And that's not, not a good environment for anybody. And companies don't want to live in a zero world. They want to live in a world where they are growing. And the only way they're going to be able to do that is productivity, which means making their workers smarter, better, and they're going to have to pay them more. And wages can rise faster, will rise faster than prices in that kind of environment. It's, I think it really is quite an exciting environment. And I think you have to factor in the demography here. So the good news here is that like all the supply chain labor shortages we're seeing, we're going to figure it out. We're absolutely going to figure it out because it's too much money at, at, at stake here. Look, uh, you saw the trade numbers uh, for the U.S. imports all-time record high. Well, wait a second. How did that happen? How do we have an all-time record high in imports? How does that jive with all those ships that can't uh, unload all their goods? Somehow, these imports are getting in. The problem is we just overstimulated demand and just overwhelmed the system. And suddenly, all these companies that had just-in-time management realize, oh my God, it's just-in-time management doesn't work in a world where there's a pandemic and where demand is absolutely booming. And so, yeah, we're going to figure it out. We're going to bring supply chains closer to home, maybe in the backyard, maybe put in in the garage of, of your factory um, uh, 3D manufacturing facilities. We're going to see a lot of that. Semiconductor companies are already announcing that they're going to come come here to the, to the U.S. Uh, we have a cold war with China and uh, I think that's going to convince more and more companies that China is not a good place to do business uh, or, or to try to, to grow. And you've got to come here to the United States and other parts of the world where it's where it's freer. Ed, uh, I want to ask you about I want to ask you about uh, something that Ben and, and Michael on Animal Spirits podcast were talking about last week, which is that. For 10 years, we heard that the robots were coming for all the truck driving jobs and all the port jobs and all the, the warehouse work. Now it turns out only the robots might be able to save us from these shortages. And I think about a field like healthcare. Right. Speaking of demo speaking of demography, we're I, I don't think that we can get through the next 20 years if you don't have more automation exactly. in a certain area. I don't think that we need to have people cleaning airport bathrooms. I would rather have people programming robots that will clean airport bathrooms. Is that controversial? It shouldn't be. I think it's inevitable. I, I think Japan has been the uh, uh, the poster child for where most societies are going. Uh, Japan has uh, had a very low fertility rate for many years. They haven't replaced themselves. And starting in 2011, more people died that year in, in Japan than were born. And their population has been shrinking ever since. And that's something we're all going to be dealing with here. Just about every country in the world, except Africa, some African countries and India, have seen the fertility rate fall below replacement because of urbanization. So even in China, they're running out of working age uh, uh, people. 
and Japan dealt with their shortage of workers. You know, they're, they're sort of xenophobic. They, they don't uh, like to have a lot of immigration to help relieve their labor shortages. So they're extremely automated, extremely robotic in what they do. And uh, again, I think uh, the robots aren't going to replace workers. They're going to work with workers. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it would be great if some of the menial jobs uh, get done by robots. Absolutely. And you show in your book too that the I think your numbers go back to the '70s as a chart. We don't have it in our in our graphs here, but uh, it used to be like 3.8 people in each household. Now it's down to like 2.5. I may be getting those numbers wrong, but right. um, th- I guess that's another way well, that's, where that, we we don't have this infant mortality anymore, where you need to have seven children so that three of them will grow up. Right. And we also have this situation where, like, to pay for college and housing Correct. for a kid, it's so daunting. That wealthy, sophisticated families at a certain point, despite the wherewithal, they just stop having more than two kids. Yeah. And we've got uh, now a a record number of uh, singles, uh, both uh, uh, those who were never married. So the kind of the uh, younger folks. And then we got uh, divorced and and, and widowers. uh, But we've got a, a, a tremendous increase in the number of singles in our society. And they don't make as much as uh, uh, as people in families or or in households where there's more than uh, one worker, and that's certainly affected the uh, some of these uh, income inequality statistics that the progressives uh, quote. Uh, but they never really get into that. They just uh, they really base their argument on on one statistic that's put out by the Census Department, uh, which is based on survey data rather than hard data from income taxes and other sources, and that's something called uh, median. Um, household uh, income adjusted by the CPI again. And uh, that's what uh, has really stagnated for, for, for decades. But if you look at uh, figure eight for a second, uh, we're looking at, uh, again, hourly compensation, which is our friend here from that previous chart on productivity, I, again, deflated by the deflator rather than by the CPI. And you can see the, the, the red line is non-farm business uh, hourly compensation, and then a couple of other uh, comparable uh, statistics. And the most comprehensive is the red line, and it's been increasing by roughly 1.5% per year since 1995. And that's exactly when progressives will tell you that uh, we've had income stagnation since at least back then, and that's just wrong. Um, I want to ask what you think people will take away from the book. So I, I want to give people the, the the right impression. This is not an economics textbook. This is a book that every person should read, even if their conclusion is different than yours. There's a lot of information in here yeah. that people can apply to just the way they think about how the right. world works and human incentives. So like what f- – from your perspective, what do you want the reader to get out of this book? Um, because we're, we're going to link yeah. to it and we're going we're gonna to try to get as many people to read it as possible. Look, I, I know I can be accused as being a conservative and, uh, you know, favoring the rich and, and all that. I'm really just trying to provide some balance here. I think all the debating has really been one-sided. It's, uh, it's just kind of almost taken for granted in our, in our society that uh, the, the rich have gotten richer at, at the expense of everybody else, that the workers are being exploited and uh, that they haven't had any uh, improvement in their standard of living and that uh, they haven't even seen a trickle down from the productivity gains. They've all gone to uh, to, to the rich. I really want people just to have a, a more balanced view. Uh, I'd like economists to have a more balanced view because economists tend to ignore proprietor's income. They tend to ignore pass-throughs. 
And pass-throughs to me are really the heart of the entrepreneurial spirit in, in America. That's where you see people forming their own companies and and a lot of them are successful. Not all of them. I mean, a lot of them fail. But guess what? Uh, these people have a tendency to fail and then start all over again or to try something else. So there's a tremendous entrepreneurial spirit. And we don't want to squelch that. That's what causes, that's really causes a prosperity for all of us. And I think we're looking at a, a very exciting period up ahead here if we don't screw it up. And that is a period where labor shortages are going to force companies to increase productivity and the technology is there to make it happen and just let it happen because we're all going to benefit from that. I like the, uh, I like the symmetry of the generation that graduated college in between two stock market crashes, 2000 and, and 2007, finally having their moment where labor has a little bit of leverage versus capital, uh, for the first time in a while. I kind of, I kind of like that uh, that that possibility. Did we lose Ed? I'm here. Can you see oh, me? Okay. Yep. We yes. got you. So we see oh, you. That was weird. I think okay. I heard something clicking in the at the house here. I live on Long Island, and we're always losing power. But uh, I've got a generator, so maybe it went back, went on and saved the day. So see, I was the asking, robot, I was the robots saying, win again. That, the that robots, are, the robots like, are fighting back. That or somebody doesn't like my story, and you know. <laughs> I, I was saying I like the idea of there being some comeuppance where the millennial generation that graduated college into a horrific decade, the 2000 to 2009 era, now having some leverage right. and now having the, the wherewithal to ask for raises and quit their jobs and start new companies or demand higher pay. That right. all seems to be happening now. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was triggered by the pandemic, but it's not fading, is it? I, I think the pandemic accelerated a lot of these trends, but the dem- the demographic trends were there all along. I mean, as I said, the oldest baby boomers are turning 75. You know, they I'm, I'm 71. I'm, I'm going to work until they take me out in a box. Uh, but a lot of my uh, friends are saying, you know what, especially with the pandemic, uh, the meaning of life is travel, be with your family, be with your friends. I, I'm able to multitask and do all that. But you're going to see more and more baby boomers retiring. And then guess what? We'll pass away. And then the next generation uh, will, will will get get more and more of the wealth. It's inevitable. And I, I think that the, the millennials, the Gen, Gen Xs, all these people have the opportunities and are seizing the opportunities to do better. And with technology being so powerful, um, look, my company wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the, the technology revolution. I, I'm on the internet so researching all the time. I distribute over the internet to, to my client base. We couldn't be doing this call without the, the the technology that we're using now. So it it creates so much of such a great ability to create a business, to to be employed by by yourself, and to hire people uh, as you as you find that you need them. By the way, Ed, I wanted to mention we use your data all the time, and you have some of the prettiest charts in all of finance. Um, and, and you know what? They're all automatically updated. So we have a very crude artificial intelligence system where our server is going to Haver Analytics and uh, and uh, the uh, Thomson Reuters uh, uh, server and saying, you got anything new for me? And as soon as, look, when employment comes out at 8.30 uh, in the morning, first Fridays uh, of the month, our system updates all those charts within a nanosecond of when they're on the server, on, on the, uh, uh, the vendor server. So uh, this technology has been absolutely awesome. We love it. 
And that's what kind of gets me so excited is we can all use technology to make things better. I, I've recommended that when people look at their stock portfolio, look at it and say, is every one of these stocks a technology company? They say, well, what are you kidding? You want to be overweighted technology? Yes, I do. I want not only the companies that make the technology, I want all the companies that are, can use the technology to increase their productivity to do so. That's really what I mean by that. I want to do in the time we have left, and you've been so generous with your time. Sure. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Uh, and by the way, if you're just tuning in or you tuned in late, uh, remember Ed's new book is called In Praise of Profits. It can be purchased online, your, your Amazon and everywhere everywhere books books are sold. Pretty yeah, much, it's, uh, you okay. know, it's, it's, it's the lowest price I could offer on Kindle, for example, and uh, and 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 paperback. I'm not looking to make any money on it. I'm looking to spread the word. Yeah, there's a there's a wealth of information in there. So, in praise of profits by uh, Ed Yordani, make sure uh, make sure you look for that. Um, and he's he's the author of many books. And uh, I, I feel like I feel like you give away a lot of of information in I'm the things that you're. I'm downloading my brain. I'm really that's the you know you really are the sci-fi movies where you know somebody's downloading their brain into this big you know liquid vat with a brain. I, I, I well, you are. That. I want to share. You it. are doing that. Yeah. So I, so in the time that we have left, I want to do like a little bit of a lightning round, but not with stocks with uh with the topics du jour. Okay. And Ben, Ben, Ben will uh, jump in too. Let's start with metaverse. Is this deflationary? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> or disinflationary? I, mean, I, I don't know. I, I, right, right now, the metaverse seems to me to be something disorienting. Uh, uh, I, I want to see that these uh, binoculars that you put on to, to see the metaverse don't make you nauseous. <laughs> so, okay. you know, once they get that solved, then ask me again. But uh, you might be a late you might be a late entrant. Into I've the used metaverse. some of your flow data okay. for this, but if if inflation is rising so high, why are interest rates still so low? That's a great question, and uh, I keep writing about it, and I call it the the bond market conundrum. Uh, we had a similar conundrum under Greenspan. Uh, I think 120 billion dollars per month in purchases of bonds by the Fed is certainly a, a big explanation why that's happened. But uh, I think demography is a, another big reason. Um, you know, uh, it may very well be that as the stock market's gone higher and higher, even the baby boomers are rebalancing uh, out of stocks and into into some bonds, uh, figuring, hey, I know what the income's going to be. I know that, you know, I, I've got only another 10, 20, 30 years to live. And uh, that's, I just don't want to risk it in the stock market. So I think that's another explanation. But look at where bonds are in Germany and Japan. They're zero. And so our bonds at the uh, 1.5% look pretty attractive if you can figure out how to hedge it. And if the dollar is going to be strong, which it looks like it could be here, then you don't need to hedge it. The great resignation sounds like something we're going to look back on in two years and laugh at. Am I wrong about that? Well, you can take this job and, uh, you know, what was that? Uh, Johnny Paycheck, I think, had a song like that. Uh, you know, what you can do with, with, with your it. job. Shove it, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, that seems to be the theme song here when you look at quits at an all-time uh, re record high. I think it's some of it is uh, baby boomers retiring said, you know what? It's That's good what I think me. it is. I'm, I'm going to travel. Uh, my, my wife and I, uh, since we've been able to travel, have been taking these very long weekends in in, in Europe. Uh, and uh, the, the fares are pretty reasonable right now. And as long as you've been vaccinated and keep a mask, we, we've enjoyed that immensely. We didn't travel that much. And I think, uh, but I, I like to work and on my laptop, I can work anywhere. Uh, but I, I don't know. I think the great resignation is related to the demography of there's a shortage of workers 
and workers are in this amazing position where they can tell their employers, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to find, find a better job. And we're seeing the job switchers are getting bigger pay increases. And by the way, we're also saying that people who are getting the lowest wages are seeing the biggest increases in their wages that are beating inflation, whereas people with high incomes aren't beating inflation. But who cares? They've got some savings built up. Um, we don't have to feel sorry for them. We have to feel good for people who've been at the bottom and now have all these opportunities. When you got companies saying, come work for us and we'll pay for your college, we'll pay for your training, we'll, we'll give you a better life, that's a radical change in the, in the work, working environment. And it's a good one. Ben, you got one for, for Ed? Uh, how much longer can the tech stuff continue to run higher? I feel like people have been saying for 10 years that there's no way technology can get as big as it has, and it just continues. Is this just the regular norm right now? Well, could it be 50% of the, the S&P? Yeah, well, it, it could be. Um, I mean, uh, it's, it's probably pretty close to that if you take uh, tech uh, and add uh, communication services. And then, you know, we've got uh, uh, medtech, we've got uh, fintech, uh, fintech. Everything is becoming tech. It goes to my notion that tech is, uh, is everywhere in, in our portfolios, and we should be making sure that companies are using tech to improve that technology. So, uh, I mean, it, in effect, it could become 100%, meaning that, uh, that the, the earnings are driven by technology, either because companies are selling it, technology that works to increase earnings, or companies are using it to increase earnings. Last one, and then we'll, 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 let, we'll let you go eat some dinner. Um, I was, I was at a bar, which is very rare for me. I was at a <laughs> bar with, uh, a, a, a gentleman from one of the large crypto, one of the very large crypto is this exchanges. The, is this where the horse walks in? No, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no horse. Um, but he was, uh, he was carrying on about decentralized finance or DeFi, which I'm sure you think a lot about. And one of his comments was, can you believe there's still a such thing as DTC? And they're taking, they're taking like staples boxes filled with papers and passing them along to each other. And nobody knows anyone who works there. And nobody even knows mm-hmm. why it is what it is. And they sit at the center of the stock market and they are manually moving paperwork around so that trades could settle in three days. Yeah. How could decentralized finance not completely end that along with a million other things on Wall Street? I, I, I Where will. do you stand on that? Yeah, I think technology is, does an extremely good job of getting rid of intermediaries and it allows us to use technology to so that the producer and the consumer uh, can, can interact and uh, don't need intermediaries uh, shuffling paper around. Uh, so I, I think it's inevitable. I think it's also inevitable that central banks are going to be trying to uh, regulate, to heavily regulate uh, a lot of what we're seeing in the digital finance uh, world. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it it makes so much sense. It saves so much money, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I've become uh, you know I, I interact with my kids uh, w- over Venmo, <laughs> uh, you know, just in, 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 instant like that. So you have to make sure that you're not putting in the wrong amount uh, or large. So, too so large you think amount. the block? So you think the blockchain will be as disruptive as the proponents are saying it will, or is there still a lot more hype than than actual activity? No, I, 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 I think blockchain is just part of the whole di- digital society that we, we live in. Uh, I think it's got some frightening aspects in terms of privacy, in terms of the, how much the government uh, uh, knows about us and can control us. So th- 
it's it's not as though this uh, brave new world doesn't come with some real risks. And if you want to see how it could turn really nasty, I think the Chinese have, are kind of leading the way and using technology for uh, uh, for for for, e for evil uh, uh, means. But here in the U.S., as long as um, you know we 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 do what we can to maintain a, a free, open society, I think. Uh, it's all good. It increases productivity. It uh, allows people to spend less time shuffling paper. It's it's all good. Ed, I want to say thank you so much sure. on behalf of Ben and I and Duncan and the compound and uh, all, all of the people tuning in live and all of the people who will listen to this as a podcast tomorrow morning on the Goldmine Network. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with thank us. Once again, the book is in praise of profits. Profit or profits? Profits. And we're not talking All right. It's a it's a great book. There's a ton of information in there, very accessible. You don't have to be an, an economics major to get a lot out of this. So make sure you buy a copy of In Praise of Profits. Check out uh, Ed at yourdenny.com. If you're uh, a market participant and you want to up your game in terms of the sort of data and charts that you're looking at to make decisions. Ed's charts are some of the best in the industry. All the pros uh, are subscribers. So check out yourdenny.com. Ed, thanks so much for coming on tonight. We appreciate you. Thank thanks, you Ed. very much, guys. I appreciate your time. Enjoy. All right. And and to everyone listening, make sure you check out um, the Goldmine podcast if you want the audio version of this. And that'll be live, I believe, at some point tomorrow. Okay. Thanks. Have a great night. Good night. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today. Solid.